the Student Sums It Up Through Sound. I'm your host, Olivia Giger, and every Wednesday I'll sit down with the editors, writers, and newsmakers of Amherst College to get a grasp on the biggest stories of the week. Today is Wednesday, March 10th. We're going to start our conversation by looking outside of the campus bounds to the local businesses of Amherst Town and how the pandemic and the college's bubble have impacted them. Sophie Wilmer joins us yet again with some reporting on that story. Hey, Sophie, what are you finding out by talking to small businesses in the Amherst area? So local businesses have really struggled to keep their doors open since last March, which is a complete year ago, when local colleges and universities like UMass and also Amherst, they ousted their students from the campus. Even though the town has demonstrated this tremendous resiliency in light of like next to nothing retail activity and the lacking student population, the pandemic is definitely going to have permanent effects for the businesses that lie just outside of the boundaries of the bubble. What is the college doing to ameliorate that, if anything at all? How is How are they trying to preserve any sort of town-gown relationship? Right. So I actually talked to Chief of Campus Operations, Jim Brassard, and he's also on the board of directors for the Amherst Area Chamber of Commerce and the Downtown Business Improvement District. So he's definitely involved with these local organizations organizations that are trying to keep businesses afloat. AACC and the Amherst BID, they've collaborated throughout the pandemic to support local businesses and foster continuity in the business sector. This has been a major factor in ensuring business continuity. And among their initiatives, Amherst College has also taken a part. They contributed $50,000 in support of local businesses. Brass will mention that there are numerous other initiatives that these organizations have taken, like they donated 10,000 pieces of PPE to businesses. It started an initiative where they had $16,000 worth of gift cards that were bought just that were designated for local businesses in the Amherst area. And they also created a downtown Amherst Foundation, which thus far has raised over $400,000 from donations to provide relief and continuity grants. It makes my $50 Amherst Coffee gift card that I bought last March pale in comparison. That's pretty amazing. A lot of money going into this. Where is that coming from? Well, I know in a large part that the state has been involved in partially funding these initiatives. Like there was a funding from the state which enabled the Chamber of Commerce to distribute $23,000 worth of micro grants to the Amherst area small businesses. In terms of the college money, I'm not sure exactly where that's coming from though. And lastly, I wanted to ask about the impact that this is taking on students. I know that a number of students, perhaps not the largest source of employment, but plenty of students did find work off campus in coffee shops or restaurants. Has there seemed to be a measurable shift in employment opportunities for students who are usually employed um, in these local businesses or has the college risen to meet that new demand in other ways? Well, for AJ Hastings, I'm not sure exactly how many members of Amherst College that they employed before, but I spoke to their co-owner and she said that she was forced to lay off all part-time staff, all high school students that work there, and they put their remaining full-time staff on furlough. This goes to show the extent of unemployment uh, that's going on throughout the town. And I actually took a look at the statistics. It turns out at its peak, the unemployment rate for the municipality of Amherst was 39.6%. I think that that was last May. It also registered businesses have decreased from 1,505 to 1,415. 
that's like almost 100 businesses that have closed in the Amherst municipality, which is really stunning numbers. So I think that this just goes to show that the almost overnight drop in population that happened when all of these college students were sent back home launched the local community into an indefinite economic crisis. Hopefully we will see that turn a corner for the better. Thanks, Sophie. As we shift our gaze beyond the existing campus grounds, we can also take a look at planning for new construction for a campus building coming soon. Yulin Lee has that story for us today. Hi, Yulin. What can you tell us about the plans for this new building that is in the works? So the new building will be called the Aliki Parodi and Seth Frank Lyceum. It'll be located just south of the president's house and will house the Center for Humanistic Inquiry and the History Department. The building is actually a renovation of an existing house on 197 South Pleasant Street. It's really to offer a counterpoint to the Science Center and celebrate the importance of the humanities. What will become of the current Center for Humanistic Inquiry, which has a beautiful space on the second floor of the library and for the spaces where the history department is now housed? There aren't any definitive plans yet for whether other departments or entities will move into the spaces being left by those two departments. The new building intends to address the dire shortage of faculty office space as well as academic space in general on campus. Mm, So it'll be mostly faculty offices and classrooms in this new building? Yes, there will also be community space for students to gather and do informal work together. Something that I thought was pretty interesting that came with the, the building of the new Science Center was programming explicitly related to science and programming that is outside of the academic but still loosely related. Will this new building offer the same kind of thing for the humanities? Definitely the Center for Humanistic Inquiry will keep hosting their programming and bringing in people to support their work, but I'm not sure if there will be programming outside of that specifically connected to the new building. What is the timeline for this? When can we expect to take a class or meet with a professor in this new building? Unfortunately, most of us here now probably won't be able to experience the new building. Construction is expected to begin in October 2021 and to be completed in July of 2023. Oh, wow. So so something to look forward to on the the long, long horizon. Well, thank you so much for this reporting, Yulin. Shifting gears, we are going to look far beyond the Amherst boundaries to study abroad programs and the impacts that the pandemic has continued to have throughout the academic year. Zach Jonas joins us with some reporting. Zach, what has been happening with study abroad programs? Who's allowed to go? What is the college sanctioning? Basically, this article was about how over 2,000 students had planned to spend their spring 21 semester abroad, and then those plans were canceled due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But as I started to write this article, I realized that the GEO, that is the Office of Global Education, has really had a rough year and a half. So when we look back at the end of 2019, if you remember, in October and November of, of that year, 
students who were studying abroad in Chile and Ecuador mm -hmm. were faced with student-led protests. They were forced to quarantine in their houses for, I think, almost half of the semester that they were that they were abroad. And then in the beginning of February of 2020, the college's study abroad programs in China obviously suspended the spring semester due to the novel at the time, COVID-19 epidemic. All those programs were eventually suspended as the spring semester continued when students at Amherst were sent home in, in early March. So this article that I, that I wrote this week was about the, the spring 2021 semester. Of the 29 students who made plans to study abroad, only four actually accomplished that. That is not including the two students who are on year-long programs. One is in Europe and one is actually in a, a niche domestic homestay program. So that student is in the United States studying remotely. A number of students wanted to travel to countries like countries in the Western Hemisphere, countries in Europe, South Africa, Copenhagen, you know, countries that Amherst students think of when they think of studying abroad. At the end of December, just mere weeks before some programs began in early January, the college released this decision that said, if a country has a CDC health advisory level of three or above, the college will not sponsor that travel. What it means for the college to sponsor a study abroad program means that they will match the tuition that that student pays at Amherst for that semester. And any credits that that student receives for the semester will be eligible for Amherst. And if you were to pull up the CDC map right now, you would see that there is no country in the Western Hemisphere with a CDC COVID-19 rating of level two or below. Greenland is the one country with level one. There is no country in Europe. There is no country in Africa. And there are relatively few countries in Southeast Asia with a CDC travel advisory rating of two or below. Those countries that students are in right now, there are four of them, they're all in South Korea, studying abroad this semester. All four are in South Korea. I know that just from word of mouth and, and talking to people and interviewing people on campus, that a number of students took time off and then just went to go live abroad. Did the Office of Global Education talk to you at all about that? Or are they involved at all in students' processes when they, when they remove themselves from school but still decide to live outside of the United States? Yeah, that's a really good question. So if you decide to study abroad, even if the college doesn't sponsor that program, that means you have to take the semester off. So not only do you have to pay for the program in full, so whatever that program costs, you have to pay out of pocket, but none of the credits that you receive at that program will apply to your degree. And as you said, there are actually a number of students who are doing that. There are two, I believe, in Paris at least. I guess to get to your point, the college is not, I would say, responsible compared to how they're responsible for a student who's completing a program which is sponsored by the college. Gotcha. And of course, the great irony of all of this is that we are all going to school in a time when you can take Amherst classes from literally anywhere in the world and students are taking them from all across the world. So in a way, people are studying abroad just at Amherst. Did this come up at all in, in your discussions? Do you know of students who are taking classes abroad who maybe just happened to live there or decided to move there? So there is one student who I was not able to interview, but her name is Sophie Kubik. She is studying also in Paris and she is taking classes at a university in Paris and classes at Amherst virtually. God. Isn't that incredible? That is incredible. So, our news editor, Sophie Wolmer, actually connected us. Another point of irony, I think, 
is that the United States has a CDC level of, I believe, four right now. So if Amherst were in a different country, students would not be able to travel to the United States to study abroad. Let alone come to campus. Mm -hmm. Another piece that I think students didn't find maybe funny or ironic, they found very disappointing, is that the programs that were canceled, some of those programs are still running, actually. So one student who I interviewed, her name is Taylor Thomas, she was going to study abroad in Scotland. The university that she was going to enroll in is still hosting international students in their study abroad program. The reason that she was not able to go is because Amherst canceled its sponsorship of that program, not the other way around. That is incredibly disappointing for those students, especially thinking back to this time last year when we all thought that we would be well in the clear and those study abroad plans would remain intact. One other point that stood out to me from this article is that the GEO, the Office of Global Education, is already looking ahead to the fall 2021 programs. And there hasn't been any announcement yet, and there probably won't be for quite a while, probably until just a few weeks until those programs actually begin. Some students are already disappointed because countries, including New Zealand and Australia, which are popular study abroad destinations, have already enacted suspensions of study abroad programs in their countries. So you will not be able to study abroad via a number of programs in those countries, which I think students might find incredibly disappointing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Especially right now. Hopefully by spring 2022, things will really be back up and running and and students will have the whole globe open to them for study. Thank you, Zach, for this reporting. And then lastly, we'll close with some human interest. Sophie has interviewed one of Biden's chief speechwriters, Dan Clutchy, an Amherst alum. Sophie, how did that interview go? What did he have to say? Dan Clutchy is a pretty amazing guy. As you mentioned, he's one of the three senior presidential speechwriters for President Joe Biden. And he was a former speechwriter and advisor for the Obama administration. He got a bachelor's degree in political science from Amherst. He went on to Harvard Law School. We started off by talking about how he got interested in speech writing and whether or not he actually thought as a child that he was going to pursue a career in politics. For him, his interest in speech writing really came about during his time at Amherst. He became interested in politics during the George W. Bush administration and the Iraq war. But really, he figured out that he wanted to become a speech writer when he discovered his deep passion for creative writing. And so he wanted to combine his passions for creative writing and for politics. And there aren't too many fields where you can do that. So that's kind of how he fell into speech writing in the first place. Did he point to anything specifically at Amherst that he felt paved his way to this position, whether it was his training in creative writing or or in political writing? Kutchi, he said that he thinks about Amherst every day. And that he's the biggest Amherst booster. He actually, he met his wife at Amherst and they got married on campus. Um, and he's just never really detached from Amherst at all. So he, he said that Amherst shaped him while he was there and it continues to shape him. His closest friends and his neighbor uh, actually went to Amherst. Um, and he also said that the political atmosphere of Amherst shaped, like it's hard to delineate for him the parse influence that maybe the college had over the four years, but the values of a liberal arts education enabled him to really explore diverse topics in terms of his course load. He finished his degree in poli sci his sophomore year. 
So he was able just to take an incredible diversity of classes after that. Wow, that is incredible. Did he lastly give any insights onto the Biden administration and what that looks like for him day in and day out? We talked about it all together, like all the people that are involved in the speech writing process. When I used to think of speech writing before talking to Clutchy, I thought, you know, a lot of it is the president requests a speech, you lock yourself in a dark room and you get to work, you know? But that's definitely the opposite of what's actually going on. He has consultants. Um, he's talking to people who are experts in the events that Biden is going to speak, be speaking at. And there are tremendous amounts of emails and conversations that go into preparing anyone's speech. Another really interesting thing we talked about is how Clutchy channels President Biden's voice in his writing and whether or not Clutchy has picked up any of Biden's linguistic mannerisms. And he said some pretty amazing things about when he's writing a speech, he likes to think of himself as a novelist with an official character. And he wants to, he almost subjugates himself and his own instincts and voice because he wants to authentically speak through President Biden. So he, he almost assumes his position of a fiction writer. And it was really amazing to hear him talk about the process that he undergoes. Uh, both in terms of talking to other individuals, but also the mental state that he has to get in in order to create these pretty significant pieces of writing, like the inauguration speech, for example. That is so cool to think of the real person who sat down and wrote those words coming from an Amherst background. So, so within our reach. Well, what a great interview, Sophie. Thank you so much for bringing that to us. And thank you, Zach and Yulin, for, for joining us. Always great to hear from you. Have a great rest of the week. It was a pleasure. Special thanks to Sophie Wolmer, Zach Jonas, and Yilin Lee for helping compile the reporting and editing needed to bring these stories to you. Thanks to Becca Pichotto and Sky Wu for the audio and podcast production help. This has been an Amherst Student Production.